Marini's Media. On today's Golazzo, arguably Italy's greatest ever centre-forward, Gigi Riva, the man who half a century ago had Cagliari saying a Riva Derci to their rivals. Hello, listener. Welcome back for another Golazzo. Today, our subject, nothing less than the man, the legend, arguably, as I say, the greatest centre-forward Italy's ever produced Gigi Riva and having a chat about him, James Horncastle. Hi, James. And Gabriele Marcotti. Great to be with you. And it's lovely to see you too, Gab. What kind of position does Gigi, Luigi Riva, hold in the Italian football firmament? I mean, he is generally considered to be the the benchmark against which all other centre forwards are, are pretty much judged. Obviously, he was before my time, but he was sort of one generation before me or before my football consciousness started. So I grew up with every center forward that, that came along from, from Altobelli to Paolo Rossi to Vialli to Casiraghi to Christian Vieri and on and on. Everybody got compared to Gigi Riva, who was sort of this universal figure also because, and obviously we're going to talk a lot about Cagliari and Sardinia in this, but the fact that he didn't play for one of the traditional powers made him incredibly nonpartisan. In Italy, more than most, we're very good at pointing out flaws of uh, of other people's heroes. But Rivera and Mazzola, you know, to go back, but, oh, but you know that guy looked funny with his mustache. Oh, but Rivera was a wuss. You know, whatever. You know, but Gigi Riva really was a figure that united everybody, precisely because he was Italian, but. He played for Cagliari. He was in Sardinia, which which in many ways is kind of like out of the national consciousness as a place, but also Cagliari as a team, you know, despite obviously, and we'll get to that, no doubt, what happened when they won the title in 1970. But, you know, it it's something that everybody can rally behind. You know, it's kind of like when Leicester won the title in the Premier League, everybody except for the odd Spurs fan was right. was a Leicester fan, right? I think Uriva is, is Italian football's Jamie Vardy, essentially. Um, yeah, with the Skittles and the vodka. <laughs> Skittles and the vodka. very much his thing. It's, I mean, incredibly iconic. His look, like the, the chiseled cheekbones, the kind of grim, determined scowl of a man throwing James Bond off a moving train. Um, and, oh, and also, uh, his prodigious shot that was powerful enough to break a ball boy's arm. And that's where his nickname comes from, the Thunder Roar now, because... Mm. Uh, the impact with which he would hit the ball and the speed with right. which it would it would travel um, was seen as something that was pretty much unprecedented. Something that sees Gianni Brera, who gave him that nickname, had never seen before. Right. One of the coolest nicknames in football anywhere, no? Yeah, Il Rombo de Tuono. Right. Yeah. The Rumble of Thunder, I'd call it. I see it described as thunderclap, but the Rumble of Thunder for yeah, me. Yeah, you're right. It is much more the, the, the rumble mm. than, uh, you know, sort of that, that's, you know, when when you kind of get the slow rumble of the thunder rather than sort right. of the immediate impact when it gets louder, yeah. Well, right. I think, uh, as Gab was kind of alluding to, I think there's always a kind of greater mystique around players who win something where nobody's ever won something before. You know, be it Maradona at Napoli, be it Totti to some extent at Roma, to have lifted that team, first of all, into Serie A for the first time in their history, and then to win the league title. And let's let's not forget, this is a team that isn't on the mainland 
and there's another island um, that constitutes part of Italy, be it Sicily with Palermo, be it with Messina, Catania, and they haven't won mm. what uh, what that Cagliari team did in, in 1970, which is it's the 50th anniversary this year. Um, and as we record this, Gigi Riva has been made the honorary president of Cagliari, kind of again as part of not just the, the 50 years, but the centenary of, of, of the club's foundation. Mm. Was he the greatest? Why did he choose to stay in Cagliari after the Scudetto, turning down world record offer transfers? Some of the issues we're going to be getting into as we explore the extraordinary story of Il Rombo di Tuono. Come te, non c'è nessuno, tu sei l'unico al mondo, nei tuoi occhi profondi io vedo. Always nice to hear a bit of Rita Pavon, and I don't say that in a, in a camp show tunes type of way. Right? Was she um, very much part of your? Uh, no, your childhood? Again, this was somewhat before my time. Well, okay, <laughs> you know we have all these stations. But, yeah, here. but you know, I mean, I arrived in Italy substantially later, but that was still something that you would hear because it's such a great song. Such a great song, Rita Pavone there. Uh, the big hit of 1963 with Comité Non C'è Nessuno, which is so very appropriate for a young man who'd grown up on the shores of Lago Maggiore up in Lombardy, foggy Lombardy. I mean, it's not foggy up there. Isn't it? No. Not so foggy Lombardy. This is an area, part of the world that I'm very familiar with. Does part of your family hail from there, Gab? <laughs> no, they don't, funny enough. But our, our summer house is up in the... Uh, is up in the Alps near the border with Switzerland, right. I've mentioned once or twice, uh-huh. which is on the hills just above the lake. Right. So in the summer when when you want to go for a swim or whatever, uh-huh. you drive an hour down. Yes. That whole area was sort of transformed economically because it was basically subsistence farming and, and stuff like that. And you had a whole generation of a bunch of people who grew up extremely poor, particularly right. on the other side of the lake, which is where Gigi Riva's from. Right, and, and his family certainly seems to have, uh, well, because of circumstances that we'll explore a little bit later, uh, went through some pretty hard times. But in 63, he's playing for Legnano down in the third division, combining that, I believe, with a job as a mechanic at the same time. Uh, but he's been the rising star because of a connection with a former Legnano uh, manager in Italy's juniores, the kind of junior team, who've had a little tournament in England and he's done well with them. And Cagliari make a move and snap him up. He makes the the transfer across to Sardinia, which the way they tell the story, he didn't even know where Sardinia was at this point. Well, no, I mean, when he's playing for the Juniores, I think they play two games against Spain. And one of them, can't remember where it is in Spain, but they they get the plane and they're flying over Sardinia. And he looks out and he's like, what's that? Um... Who's down there? And then it's like, well, that's Sardinia. They're Sardinians. Right. Um, little did he know that little his destiny would, would would also lead there. But it's kind of cool story about how transfers were done in those days. Because in the second game, I think against Spain in Rome at the Flaminio, there is Cagliari's uh, vice president Andrea Arica, and he is is watching Riva and likes what he sees and kind of makes this gesture over to his counterpart, Legnano, to say, let's talk about this at halftime and let's see if we can sort out a deal. They meet, they arrange it, and then Riva in the second half scores um, and is the man of the match. And after the game, Lazio Bologna come up to the guy from Legnano and they're like, can we sort this out? We're really interested in him. He's like, 
deal was done 45 minutes ago, mate. Sorry. Too late, boys. And it was to prove the most important signing in Cagliari's history. Riva, though, it's fair to say, was not impressed when he touched down at Elmas Airport uh, in Cagliari. He said the place was almost dark. It was a desert. It seemed like Africa. I said to myself, no, I'll stay here maybe a year and then I'm going home. Well, also because, I mean... He's aware of all the stereotypes about Sardinia in that it's bandit country, it's full shepherds of shepherds. And bandits. Um, and it's where, yeah, if you're a member of the Carabinieri and you do something wrong, it's where they send you, essentially to punish you. Sardinia was sort of seen as very much the other place. And part of this also, and it's not just a whole north-south historical divide uh-huh. in Italy because by this point, you know, by the time he went there, you know, you'd had tons of Sicilians and Calabrians come up from the south of Italy to, right. to go and work in, in the industries in the north. But those guys came up and worked. The Sardinians tended not to emigrate to the mainland or to the continent, as they would call it. And when they did, they didn't integrate in the way that Sicilians did. I mean, Sicilians obviously faced a ton of racism and xenophobia as well. I, I'm not saying they didn't. But Sardinia could have been one of those colonies on the other side of the world. As Australia. Most of, it could have been Australia, yeah. yeah. It was just not considered, and they just weren't part of the national conversation. And the right. curious thing that's going on in this decade, just prior to Gigi Riva landing in Sardinia, is that the Aga Khan has basically decided he's riding up and down the coast in a Fiat with a lawyer and an accountant basically buying everything that he can. It's like knocking on doors saying, I want your house, give me your house, thank you, here's a check. Um, cash, more likely. And, uh, and completely was transforming that coast, making it into a tourist destination. But, but, but that's the north of Sardinia. It's the right? north. So yeah. the north, which is the windswept, glamorous part today, what's remarkable is you go there, everything is new because literally this guy built it. You know, um, but as you mentioned the- in, a, in, a, in a previous uh, Golazzo when we were talking about Gianfranco Zola, one of the things about Sardinia was that people just didn't live on the coast because mm. the Saracens, the Spanish, everybody, the Turks were, were always and invading. But there's, the another guy, there's another guy who's making his fortune uh, just off the coast as well, which is Angelo Maratti. Right. Well, this is the, yes, interesting. So at this time, money is beginning to come into what had been a fiercely poor island. But oilmen, businessmen from the continent, like Angelo Maratti, owner of Inter, the man who had extraordinary success with them, were investing in Cagliari, which at the time was only about, population about 140,000, about the t- size of Colchester or, or Newport, to give you an idea of the kind of reality that uh, Gigi suddenly found himself in. Anyway, first season, they're playing in Serie B, and what happens? Straight up to Serie A. They do indeed. They play, what, Udinese on the final day, and there's uh, the Arnie Selmerson, the Moon Ray, until Kolarov, last season, was the last player to score for both Roma and Lazio in the Derby della Capitale. Wow. And he scores a screamer in this final game because Udinese are fighting to stay up in Serie B, bizarrely enough, given if you want to listen to our episode on them and how they've been in the top flight for 25 years, they actually end up getting relegated to the third division in this game because Gigi Riva scores an equalising goal with his head and Cagliari go up and Udinese go down. First season, they struggle. A halfway point, they're bottom of the table with just nine points, but then they go on an incredible second half of the season uh, with wins over the likes of Juventus and Milan and end up in, in seventh place. And a team is beginning to get built around him. Yes, I mean, there are some players who um, were part of the team that came up. I mean, this is the thing about 
we mentioned the vice president, Andrea Arica, one of the big kind of deals that he did. They often strike a lot of deals with Inter. And there was, there, was a, there was a feeling at the time that Moratti was in some way involved because of his kind of business interests that were in Sardinia. And even to this day, you've got Tommaso Giulini, who's the president of Cagliari, who still has shares in Inter and was part of the board there. And Let me try to, to clarify just for those who might get confused. When we talk about the Moratti that he's referring to, and you mentioned his name, Angelo, this is the dad. This is the Moratti from the great Inter side of the 1960s that won the two European Cups. This is not the son or one of the two sons who inherited it all, right. the less clever son. Right, but, who then had tremendous success, did the treble, again featured in yeah. a Galazzo recently. And they, in the early 60s, as you mentioned, were setting up this massive kind of petrochemical company just on, on the outside of Calorie called Saras, which was pretty much the financial engine behind into success, no? And it, there does seem to have been some strong connections with with the team Calorie that was playing yeah. on, on Saras' doorstep. Yeah, very much so. And um, they they end up doing this kind of like a, uh, a swap deal just before they win their league title. They send Boninsegna, Bonimba, to, uh, to Inter. And Boninsegna had had a really good partnership uh, with, with Gigi Riva. And they get Domenghini, who is part of the side that had won the European Cup in, in 65 with Inter. And do they get Sergio Gordi as well? And Gordi well. is one of, I think, only five players to have won the league title with three different Serie A teams. But the, the, part of the reason that was relevant was Boninsegna is very much a, a center forward in the Riva mold. And so they get Domenghini, who is much more of a provider, you know, often plays in wide areas, and that would prove to be that would prove to be critical. And they also get the goalkeeper a couple of years earlier, Enrico Albertosi, um, from Fiorentina. And Albertosi is the goalkeeper that plays with Italy at the 1970 World Cup, where they reached the final. And also Mancini, Eraldo Mancini, right. who they signed from uh, also from Fiorentina, but he was uh, a champion of Italy with Fiorentina because the team that uh, Cagliari end up dethroning. It isn't one of Inter, Juventus or Milan. It is the Fiorentina side in, in, in 1969. So you've got Domenghini on one side. You've got Nene, the Brazilian, on another side. You've got the creative midfield. But the focal point, the man who makes everything happen, is Gigi River up front. What kind of a striker? We talked about his incredible pile driver of a left foot. But that wasn't all he brought. Can you compare him to some other contemporary players? We've talked about uh, who, who we talked about so far. Vieri. I, I mean, think the acrobatic I think skills of Viali. Maybe, maybe somewhere. In, I was going to say somewhere oh. in between those two. He was probably physically stronger than uh, than Gianluca Viali. Certainly more more powerful. And and so you, you you're tempted to lean towards Vieri, but he also didn't have sort of the outsized cartoonish big body. I mean, he was like a normal proportioned person. You know, unlike Christian Vieri. Uh, sorry, Bobo. I'm not I'm not being disrespectful. I say it as a compliment, right? But he also, he was such a phenomenal athlete as well that he had that, that ability to, to hit overhead kicks, to, to hit volleys. I mean, he really was sort of an all-around package. What he maybe didn't have relative, well, here we're nitpicking. I mean, I think maybe, actually, I think in some ways maybe, well, would you say Batistuta might be somewhere in that mm -hmm. just because of the, the energy and, uh, and the strength that he brought without, I mean, he wasn't, I mean, he was very technically gifted, but, you know, he wasn't Marco van Basten. Right. Although know, he did yeah. score some spectacular volleys. Yeah. But, but, yeah, but I mean, 
I would say Vialli and Vieri aren't right. Marco van Basten mm. either. Right. Okay. Marco van Basten is Marco van Basten. Very kind of broad shoulders, able to kind of hold up the ball. And remember, this is a time, and you know, whenever you speak to people from that era, they say that in order to get a penalty, you know, you need a doctor's note basically saying you're going to yeah. miss the next 15 games because... Or play for Juventus. Sorry, what? <laughs> <laughs> so, and also it was a, a time when basically, you know, Italian teams were set up in a certain way, yep. which was not to concede. Yep. They would have a sweeper behind the, the back line as well and they would man mark. So they would follow you to the bathroom. They'd swap shirts in game with you. That's right. the thing. Yeah. Well, um, in such difficult circumstances, Gigi Riva was able to get 18 goals in 30 fixtures because it was a smaller division mm. back then, becoming the league's top scorer in the 66-67 season. Further additions made to the side, not least the arrival of Manlio Scopinho, the uh, philosopher. Yeah. Extraordinary. Given figure. that name a long time before Zlatan called Pep, uh, the philosopher. The philosopher. Or... Because he had a university degree. And he's just a magnificent figure as well. I mean, there's some lovely stories about the way the way he exuded this kind of quiet authority with, with the team. But also just seeing interviews with him, the last thing he looks like is, is a football manager. And I mean that in a nice way. <laughs> <laughs> but there's that, there's that story about um, how the players, I think four of them are playing poker one night um, in, a, in a hotel. Um, and there's a knock on the door. And uh, Sergio Gotti thinks he knows who it is. It's the coach. He's doing the rounds. And so hides in the, uh, hides in the wardrobe. And he just opens the door and goes, oh, lads, you're playing poker. Um, do you mind if I join in? Uh, and then just sits on the bed smoking. Right. It, but then after he says, but this will be the last one for us all. Eh? Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and then what I would love about that story is if Sergio Gotti just stayed in the wardrobe all night. Because there's, <laughs> there's a foursome playing poker and then Scopino takes a place. Yeah. And, right. Well, know, I think and Jackass has to stay in there. The amazing thing is about uh, just reading up about Scopino is that, you know, the last few weeks, months, all we've talked about um, when we talked about Italian football is the Ritiro with mm. Napoli, Ancelotti, the detention. And back in the 60s, he was like, this is just so old-fashioned and archaic. It's ridiculous. He said, we, we don't need to go in Ritiro. Living in Cagliari is a Ritiro. <laughs> Riva's goals have made him the first Cagliari player ever to get a senior Italy call-up. He features in the Azzurri side uh, that uh, wins the European title. He scores a goal in the final, the replay of the final against uh, Yugoslavia. It, it, fair to say the European Championships were a little bit different in those days. First of all, when the final was tied, they had another one two days later. But also, it's probably Which, worth mentioning. Way, it's much cooler it's, than yeah, it's, it's so stupid. There's a case for it, certainly. What's, I think, uh, more unusual is the way that they, they dealt with the draw in the semi-final, which led to Italy getting to the final. With the drawing of lots? <laughs> no, they flipped a coin. Well, Didn't Facchetti come out? Who was it who took the... the... So at the end of the game against uh, the Soviet Union in, in Naples, mm. basically the referee produced a coin and said, what do you want, heads or tails? And, and both sides were heads. Were they? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So anyway, so Italy went through to the final in Rome with Yugoslavia. Anyway, more Azuri highlights, the iconic diving header against East Germany, the San Paolo in the run-up to the 1970 World Cup. His talking, first goal. Sorry, can I just point out? Yeah. Mm -hmm. You make it seem like all he does is score against or play against places that no longer exist. <laughs> Yugoslavia, Soviet yeah. Union, right. East Germany. Yeah. He was part of cancel culture before he even kind of <laughs> yeah. existed. Um, I still find this pretty staggering about Riva is that you know, his final uh, game for Italy was in 1974, right. World Cup, which ended in kind of a scandal um, with uh, Kinalia's Waffa um, straight down the camera. 
But he's the top scorer. He's still the all-time top scorer for the it's national team with it? with 35 goals in 42 games. Which um, I think if the only people who come close to him are pre-war strikers like uh, Piola and Miazza. Um, and then there's Del Piero, but Del Piero had what 99 games for Italy. So right. that goal to game ratio is remarkable. And also because the reason why he had so few games is because he he sustained some really really massive injuries uh, while playing uh, a couple of times before. I think his first for goal for Italy mm. against Portugal, he he breaks his leg doing it because two places, he, yeah. he just he puts it past the goalkeeper. The goalkeeper then lands on his foot and he breaks his leg. So. One of the arguments that, again, I don't know if this is true, was that because of his childhood, which we haven't spoken about yet, but which you promised me we will, um, (laughs) he simply didn't have the nutrition. Right. And his bones were actually, despite, you know, having a very athletic big frame, his bone structure wasn't what it should have been. Well, that makes some sense. His exploits with the Azurian calorie are enough to earn him second in the Ballon d'Or in 1969, behind uh, Jenny Rivera, uh, his future partner in that 1970 squad. In 1968-69, Callery, having reached the top flight for the first time ever, only in the mid-60s, are now gunning for the title. They lead City A for a long time. Yeah, they're winter champions. Yeah. And they lead it for, what, 15 of the 30 match days as well. It's only, I think, in, in April that they end up giving up the lead and Fiorentina go on and win it. And the following year, the unthinkable happens. They win the Scudetto. A concedergli il vantaggio di cui in effetti non essi giovava per scagliare a rete con forza e precisione, ma il suo tiro si spegneva niente meno che sul corpo di Riva. Una circostanza del resto largamente prevista, mentre De Robbio fischia in questo istante la fine. Il Cagliari è campione d'Italia. Wonderful voice of Enrico Ameri there. And before him, Sandro Ciotti, another incredibly distinctive uh, member of the kind of Italian sports broadcasting firm and an owner, possessor of, exponent of the most extraordinary shirt collars in history. <laughs> Just incredible. I think it was more the gravelly voice. Well, yeah, no, obviously the gravelly voice, but his shirt colours were immense. They were. I just thought it was the seventies, and yeah, but even even in the nineties, he was well, still he didn't wearing feel the those need to update boys. his wardrobe. He was comfortable with who he was. I, I'm extremely comfortable with his. Uh, I don't know how comfortable they were. You dress eighties, so you know. I mean, there's exactly. no cardigan that can hold those shirt collars. Like, no. Everything he's in, be it a suit jacket, they're out. They're almost vampire-esque in there. <laughs> Anyway, but that's not the point. That's them talking about the extraordinary moment, the 12th of April, 1970, when Cagliari became champions of Italy with a 2-0 victory over Bari. So many wonderful stories about that game. The urban myth, which apparently is absolutely true, is actually mentioned by Amedi in, the, Amedi in his, his commentary, of the two guys who've been on the run from, from the police who actually get arrested in the build-up to the game because they're hanging around outside the, the dressing room hoping to get an autograph. And the police, because the game's so important, go, that's all right, we'll handcuff you to one of the, the bits of arm work in the stands and you can watch the game with us. They let them watch the game. That's how important it was. Put- you know, Calgary were fugitives from the fifth match there. They led pretty much from then onwards. So. Very nice. No, no one, one could catch, catch them. <laughs> nice. That is nice. But yeah, I mean, you talked about the relative scale and the fact that Italian football was dominated by Inter, Juve and, and Milan. No one had ever won. No one south of Rome had ever won a Scudetto before. No one from an island had ever done it before or has since. How big, how improbable an achievement was this? I mean, it was remarkable. I mean, there is the 
the small southern club aspect of it. And again, it's not just nobody south of Rome. I think by the time they won it, I think one team from Rome had won it, Roma in 1943, I think. Yeah. With, and under then, circumstances with asterisks. Well, <sighs> come on. So, so that, that's just propaganda. Um, and then I think Fiorentina had won it twice, and that was it. Other, other than that, you, nobody south of Bologna had, had ever won. Obviously, Napoli's titles would come later, just before Diego Maradona ascended into everybody's hearts, and that was that. But then you have the other factor that it was a Sardinian team that won it, which put a whole new spin on it because this is Sardinia. You know, this isn't Sicily where, for a whole bunch of reasons we've discussed many times, you know, half the people are Juve fans. This meant so much to Sardinia. It meant so much to the island. You know, Cagliari is very much the capital of Sardinia. You don't, in Italy is a country that's incredibly stupid or stupid. I mean, some might like them, but local rivalries where, like, you hate the people the next town over, and talking about you, Brescia and Bergamo, more than, you know, you hate anything. But in Sardinia, it's not like that. In Sardinia, you know, Cagliari were playing for all of all of Sardinia. And right. you mentioned Gianni Brera again, so this is our second or third Brera reference of the of, of this uh, show, but he said, with that victory, Sardinia finally became a part of Italy. Right. It's Italy... Deciding that Sardinia is part of Italy, yes, no longer the, the, the other way around, being kicked by the Italian boot. Yeah, mm. but you know, right, I mean, this is seen as a region of Italy. When you know, I think a lot of Sardinia was also feel it's like an it's that's their national team, Cagliari. Yeah. Um. So it it did feel like a triumph for the entire island. Gigi Riva is top scorer again. He's, he becomes Capocannoniere for for three mm. different seasons. Twenty one goals that campaign. Probably the most famous, the overhead kick against Vicenza. Su un'azione condotta da Domenghini, Riva risolve con una rovesciata acrobatica. Il pubblico applaude calorosamente la prodezza dell'attaccante cagliaritano. Scopino basically says that was the game that basically they all looked at each other and said, we can do this. Wow. Um, and it, it wasn't just because of, of that goal, but they had suffered a, a bad injury to their sweeper, Tomassini, mm. um, and basically they had to change things up um, and they ended up putting a midfield player, Pierluigi Cera, as the libero. If that didn't work, then there was a real risk that their season would fall apart. Again. And instead, it didn't just work, it was one of the key reasons why they went on um, and finished so strongly at the end of that season. Another key game was their clash away with Juventus, which I think was in, in March and... Twice they went behind, once to a, a controversial penalty that was saved by Albertosi, and then Concetto Lobello, the, 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 the famous Italian referee, made Juve take it again, and they scored and they go ahead. But both times it was goals from Gigi Riva that earned Calorie the point that kept them two points ahead of uh, Juventus and on their way to the title. So just to be clear, yeah. the Lobello incident evidence of the fact that Juve do not get all the controversial calls all right. the time. That's true. All right. Let's just be clear on that. Uh, Calorie also were given a penalty in that game. They were. Mm. Uh, so that's nice. Yeah. And there was a known goal in that game. Everything happened in that game, James. That was the Juventus side that um, Christian Vieri's father, I think, was playing for oh. as well. Oh, nice. I mean, the, the curious thing is, is that uh, we've mentioned that Fiorentina won the league the year before and then Calorie won it in 70. It's, you do feel that, um, for example, Inter, I think Herrera had, uh, had gone. Um, and uh, he was at Roma, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah, and they was um, a young Fabio Capello. Yeah, and they 
they still had some of the stars from um, uh, their last European Cup winning side, but they were very much at the end of a cycle. And then likewise, Juve didn't really have, apart from Helmut Haller, they didn't right. really have anyone, Anastasi, anyone who was, you would consider to be a, so a true Juventus great. a little great. bit of a power vacuum. When you mentioned those teams being there, and this is, again, a very Italian thing that, that's, that's, I think, very different from most European countries, maybe Spain a little bit, is the figure of the president, of the owner, right? I mean... The patron. The, the patron, yeah. I mean, look, it's the same. I guess it is like that in, you know, in, in Spain. People have probably gone endlessly about Florentino and whatever. There is a whole school of thought that says, by that point, Moratti and Inter, you know, they'd gone to, to the end of the cycle... He'd won, he'd spent money, and now he was slightly retrenching. That Juventus around that time, remember this was the end of the 60s, beginning of the 70s, there was a lot of, you know, 1968 had just happened, there was a lot of uh, a lot of political unrest, the left was rising, he owned factories, and he, we would then go into the so-called Anni di Piombo, the years of lead, and with, with extremist terrorists and stuff, so Gianni Agnelli was preoccupied with that. So there is this, you know, there's sort of this alternate, alternate history to Italy, that it's the fact that the big presidents were were otherwise preoccupied, and that is what enabled Fiorentina and Cagliari to win. And the remarkable thing about Cagliari is, I don't think we've mentioned, you mentioned the vice president, we haven't mentioned the Cagliari president at the time, and I think that's kind of what makes this more special, because he's not really part of the narrative in the same way, right? Because it was Angelo Moretti. <laughs> <laughs> so officially... It was the guy who was, I think, the senator. It was a, the, he was represented a, the, the region of And he was uh, also, Sardinia. I think he'd been president of the Bank of Sardinia. Riva, having become the first calorie player ever to make it to Italy's senior side, is one of six calorie players that summer, following the Scudetto win, to join Italy for the trip to Mexico. Six calorie players. Five of them start in the first game against Sweden. Which, which is, sorry, just for context, which is, it's just unbelievable. You take a step back, right? You wouldn't have five players from a mid-table team starting for any kind of national team today, you know, if only because every team's got so many foreign players. But even back then, it was just unheard of. Well, I mean, aside from the famous Juve block, where there'd always be like eight. But that's a big team, though. No, yeah, sure. Um, But maybe it was in March last year, I think Kelly had four players called up. Um, for the national team to be part of the squad. And that was the first time that happened since the 60s. Previous days, right. Most famous of all was the man that Italian fans declared was better than Pele, Gigi Riva. <laughs> Gigi Riva's World Cup didn't start well. He didn't score in the group games. There was some controversy about his perhaps romantic uh, liaisons back in, in Sardinia. Uh, Riva, who's always, always an incredibly laconic figure, no? I mean, he was a man of very, very few well, I words. I don't know this made him perfect for Sardinia, the context right. in which he, he found himself in. Fitted right in. Hmm. Indeed so. However, after that sluggish start, he is part of the game of the century, Gab. Well, and before that, before one win over, over Mexico. But also yes. the full one win over Mexico. So the game of the century, um, and you can still go on YouTube and see this, and once you get over the fact that, you know, people move slower than they do today, <laughs> you kind of realize, like, how incredible this was with the ups and downs, pitted uh, Italy against the old enemy, um, everybody's old enemy, in fact, the, the, the Germans. West Germans. And it was remarkable because 
you know, this was the game where Franz Beckenbauer breaks his arm. And because he's not a wuss, what does he do? He tapes his arm to his chest and keeps playing and is outstanding. Basically, the first 90 minutes end 1-1 with a very late equaliser from West Germany. Then all hell breaks loose in the second half. Riva makes it 2-2 in extra time after the Germans have opened the scoring in the uh, supplementari. Riva, 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 tiro, and a goal! Riva, Riva, segnato, 3-2 for Italia. Taking a pass from Domenghini and then basically cutting back across Setmeyer and in. West Germany then equalise again before Gianni Rivera makes it 4-3 and book Italy their place to a less than successful final appearance against Brazil. I'm Kate Borsay and have I got a podcast for you? Well, yes, I do, because it's all about football and it's called the Offside Rule WSL Edition. It's hosted by me, Kate Borsay and Lindsay Hooper, a very fine combination we are too. And every week we get a whole host of different names and voices from women's football to talk to us about the latest news and action on and off the pitch. We've had England striker Nikita Paris. This is what we've earned. We've earned the right to be playing at Wembley. We've earned the right to be playing in front of 77,000. England goalkeeper Karen Bardsley. You said that you want to make goalkeeping sexy. How do you plan about doing that? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> That's awesome. Well, I don't have to do much, do I? And Jay Montemuro joined us live from the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. For me, it just uh, indicates the growth of the league and uh, that uh, a lot of big players want to come and play for the big clubs in, in, in the WSL. If you like the sound of that, then search now for the Offside Rule WSL edition wherever you're listening to this and get some women's football in your life. The Offside Rule WSL edition, because women play football too. There's Gigi Riva, hero of the Azuri, hero of Cagliari, and once again, the big clubs came a-calling, particularly Juventus. Did you know that he got turned down by Inter, actually, before he even went to Cagliari? Yeah. He had a trial at Inter. Helenio Herrero is like, ah, this kid's not up to much. Right. Don't like him. What a thing. Anyway. This is when he had Aurelio Milani as a centre-forward, mm. was it? I mean, yeah. Whatever. Moratti apparently used to send him a Christmas gift. Right. Every year, just to remind him, just like, you know, I know you're an Inter fan. I rate you. Yeah. I've just got this crazy Argentine who's my coach and he keeps winning things, so I can't do anything about that, unfortunately. So there's talk of... funny. That's probably that. Obviously, Moratti wouldn't have been speaking in English. Right. But that exact accent and that exact voice, that's exactly how (laughs) Angelo Moratti talks. You know, no, seriously, like... One of the most celebrated things about Riva, along with his goals is the fact that he stayed. He was loyal to Cagliari when he could have, in his words, tripled his money elsewhere. Think of all the Fiat factories that could have been around Sardinia if he'd just gone to Turin. Right. You know? They, uh, the talk is that they offered, in uh, 1971, after the, the Scudetto, a billion lira and nine players to have Gigi Riva. A couple of years later, they came back with one and a half billion, which I think at the time was about three times the world record, whether these were the actual figures, that was the tool. Now, there's more than one way of reading this. One is the suggestion, which actually Massimo Moratti, the son of Angelo, who 
then had huge success himself as yeah, eventually spent a lot of Angelo's money. Yeah, uh, with with Inter and Jose Mourinho, he actually recently said uh, that his father Angelo uh, basically made sure that Riva never left Sardinia. Yes. That he he didn't want him going to Juventus, so he basically helped out. That's the suggestion here. Yeah, I mean, I think even Gigi Riva says that um, there was always the suspicion that in the event that he didn't leave Cagliari, well, at least for a team that wasn't Inter, then right. Inter would, uh, you know, help Cagliari out. Right. But there is another angle to this, and you, you've you've cited. Um, Gigi's childhood, which was, uh, as he puts it, idyllic until he was nine years old. But uh, when he was nine, his father died in a, a pretty horrible accident at yeah, the foundry he, where he's working. Yeah, he didn't just die. He was, you said it is, it is horrible. He was basically impaled by a piece of machinery. I mean, the family wasn't wealthy to begin with. Mm. And then his, his mother had a whole range of jobs, including including a job which... I honestly, I generally don't know. I, I hope this job no longer exists and has been taken over by machines. I had no idea until until quite recently quite I, what it entailed. I can't wait to hear what it is, Ken. It's working in what we call the, the filande, which is where they make silk. So essentially you have these muddy, crappy fields filled with, with silkworms who uh-huh. produce the silk. Right. And you need somebody to physically go in and extract the silk from the worms and then to basically turn it into into thread so that uh-huh. then you can make silk. And this is the kind of job that was often done by usually it was actually young girls when, when they would when they would leave school. Because it was it was a seasonal thing. And the reason I'm quite well versed on this is all my grandmother's older sisters, they all went and they did this. And mm. for like two months, whenever the, the season was, they'd they'd leave and they'd and the, you don't stay in like tents or churches or whatever and you would help out in the fields with these disgusting sorry I don't like worms these disgusting silkworms and this is right. what this is what she did it's it was incredibly low paid incredibly horrible right. work I and if you're a silk producer please do get in touch because I am curious how they do it today I would hope that this is not mm. how they do it mess they'll do it's it how they did it back but, then though and that meant that what she couldn't do was take care of Gigi and he went away for three years. So he goes to the, a seminary, no? Yeah, uh, which is a boarding school. And I mean, he, as I say, he's a man of few words, but there are a few things that he actually opens up he on. Did and not that, like this. He, he he says it was it was the the humiliation of being poor, uh, the, the the cold rooms, the lousy food, singing at other people's funerals three times a day. But and the thing that he really stresses is the way that he felt humiliated by the people running the place. Mm. That they would give them bread if they prayed. That they would continually remind themselves that it was. They should be thankful for all of this, that it was their fault that they were in this position and also, because I mean, they were poor. His, um, his sister, Fausta, mm-hmm. who I think comes to Sardinia with him, um, she was, um, I think, in a wheelchair for three years because she was crossing the street one day and a cyclist just completely ran into her. Wow. A uh, really bad accident. Um, and, of course, you, you, we mentioned his, his father, but his mother passed away before he even... Uh, moved to Sardinia, yeah. so, so they is... never got to see what Gigi Riva became, um, and, and it, that's the, the the regret that he cites in you know when he when he has given interviews and recently, as you mentioned, he's been made an honorary president and other occasions he has kind of looked back a little and, and he says my my regret is not being able to give my mother the life she deserved because you know she died before I became a professional. He struggled with with loneliness, essentially taken from his family at a, at an early age and and. 
he seems to make the connection. I think it, it's there to be made that because he talks so much about Cagliari, the city, and also the team being a family. He says, I wouldn't have had that family atmosphere anywhere else. And having, having found a connection with people, he didn't want to be taken away again. The club, I think, eventually did want, for all of Inter's supposed subsidies, the club definitely at one point did want to make him move and, and essentially use the money to restart their team. But uh, Riva always said no. Yeah, I think it's not just the, the team. Uh, I think that he had a kind of family bond with. It was actually some of the people that he would just get in his his car, he would go around the island and he would find people who, you know, there's all these stories about him learning how to fillet fish, um, having a, a mate who was a car mechanic um, as well, who would, he, you know, he had a passion for sort of breaking down and putting cars back together and that sort of thing. And just lots of different Sardinian people who became a really big part of his life. And, you know, we mentioned that side of his character, which mm. I think... And it, he, it suited him because he's mm. a man of few words and there are people of even less words. So, you know, I, I, could, no, seriously, I, could, I could see him getting driving around to some place in the northeast of Sardinia getting out and there's a dude with a fish and they sort of grunt at each other and they start filleting the fish and, and he's happy and it's right. simple and it, and it fills something that, you know, given the horrendous childhood, you know, he found a level of, a fun level of peace. Also, he found a level of peace in football despite all the links between Inter and Cagliari, but without being part of the big boys. Mm. And I think that is special. And that, that, that to me is the thread throughout the story. He said no. He went his own way. And also he said, um, yeah, I mean, Cagliari were not the wealthiest club. They could not pay him what he could have got at Juventus, Inter or Milan or somewhere like that. It was like the biggest contract offer he ever received was from Franco Zeffirelli to right. appear in one of his films. Yeah, F- uh, Brother, Son and Sister Moon, I think it's called. The, yeah. um, the San Francisco, uh, San Francisco of Assisi story. Yeah. Uh, that would have been extraordinary. And to be fair, he absolutely would have knocked it out of the park. He's such an amazing looking guy, Gigi Riva. Um, I kind of, we were talking before, kind of, you mentioned Vieri and Viali, but in looks terms, I would go with a, a sort of Paul Newman stroke Daniel Craig. Mm. If you look up his Panini stickers, I mean, they are just so iconic. He's, you know, you're, you're in trouble. If you play for the other team, you're in a lot of trouble. After this, we'll talk about what happened after football. You're listening to Galazzo, the totally Italian football show. So Cagliari remained a force post the Scudetto, but a declining one, not least because of serious injuries to Gigi Riva. The following season, in fact, they're top of the table again in Serie A when he breaks his, his I think he breaks his leg again. He certainly gets a serious injury while playing for Italy, uh, which essentially scuppers not only their chances of hanging on to the title, but also of going further in the European Cup. He's forced to retire eventually, but he goes, he keeps scoring season after season after coming back from that. But between his absences and the departure of uh, Manlio Scopino, they slip further and further down the table. He hangs up his boots in 1978, although he actually plays his final game at the age of 31, a year and a half before that in 1976, which proved Cagliari's final season of that run in the top flight. He had a remarkable finale. Actually, he scored eight goals in his last six games for them, but he couldn't keep them up. They go down. He finishes with 207 goals in 374 games in all competitions for calories. You mentioned the most extraordinary statistic, though, is the 35-42 in 42 for Italy, which still makes him their all-time top scorer. He did once break a spectator's arm 
in three places, apparently, with one of his shots. This was in the, the warm-up to a game away at Lazio. It's in Rome, and there's a ball boy basically standing behind the net. Reaver unleashes one of his trademark shots, and uh, the ball boy ends up in a hospital, where apparently he's treated as, as, a, as almost like a celebrity, because everyone's like, oh, come and see the boy whose who's arm got ruptured by... Was he behind the net? I never, I never quite got this in the contemporary I presume sports. he was standing next to it. Like, so he missed, basically. I think did so, he get a, yeah. Or did he get a shot on target? I think he, he might have just been pumping balls at the at, at the net and yeah. just one of them caught this waif and completely <laughs> knocked him <laughs> sideways. In some respects, it's fortunate it only hit his arm. Well, yeah, that's true. <laughs> anyway, everyone went home happy. I actually met Gigi River at Covachano when he was doing that team manager role, which I was never quite... I mean, you would see him there on the sidelines wearing an incredibly cool pair of shades and still looking immaculate. Hair it's, slicked back. Yes, yeah. with a cigarette always mm. and never saying anything. And I always wondered whether his job was just to put the wind up young reporters well, like me. But Is that what he did? I found him quite an intimidating figure. And we did speak. Well, we had an interview with him once because, you know, obviously he was a bit of a legend. We were, yeah. But and it wasn't a particularly illuminating interview, but that was, you know, probably my fault. Well, he wasn't a man much given to, no. to talking. But... Gab, he did have an incredibly significant role with the Azuri. Yeah. So in 1998, at the uh, World Cup in France, Italy go out in the quarterfinals. Pietro misses a sitter during the game, I might add. Um, it goes to penalty kicks, and uh, and Italy go out. So afterwards, as the story goes, but I later asked him, and he said, yeah, this is what happened. Gigi Di Biagio is just totally destroyed right, because he's missed, missed the penalty. Yeah. And Gigi Riva, who I think, despite the fact that they're both named Gigi, probably hadn't spoken to him very much, takes him aside and they sit for an hour. And as it happens, as the story goes, it was basically an hour of DiBiagio listening and Gigi Riva talking. Right. That's the most he's spoken. Which is he's spoken <laughs> well, ever. I mean, on a similar note, 1994, that afternoon in Pasadena, whose shoulder does Roberto Baggio go and cry on after he's missed his penalty? It's Gigi Riva. Mm. Yeah. And Fabio Cannavaro, after the the, the, the the much happier finish of the of the World Cup in 2006. He felt left out, so he wanted to go and spend time <laughs> with Gigi Riva as well. No, I saw this quote, and I think it's really sweet. I mean... He says, if I, if I think about who reminds... Who do I think of from 2006? I can't not say Gigi Riva. His presence and his charisma were fundamental to us. I don't know if we'd have won it without him. Yeah. Buffon speaks glowingly of really? him and covets the role that Gigi Riva had um, for many years. And I suppose, yeah, feels that he can be a, a confidant, someone who can lend experience that maybe a coach or someone the coaching staff just can't do. Right. And he's also called Gigi as well. So, <laughs> so that works. Yeah. Excellent. All right. Well, uh, now Gigi Riva, who's basically retired from the team manager role, has been named by Tommaso Giulini, uh, the honorary president of Cagliari, a role that he did actually occupy way back. I think it was in the seven, was it in the seventies or the? I'm sure. I mean, he's probably had this honorary role many times over. Right. Be it with Cellino. Yeah. Yeah, deciding again when to <laughs> when, when to make him honorary present, when not to make him. Yeah. So yeah. anyway, but that's delightful for him, and particularly at a time when Callery are once again flying high. Gab, any lost thoughts on the great Gigi? I think a lot of times when when you've got a guy like that, you know, you sort of wonder, will you see another one? And I think probably not because you can imagine somebody coming along and being as good as Gigi Riva maybe even better 
but the circumstances have changed. The, the world has moved on. You will, I don't think you'll ever have somebody with such an affinity to, to a region, a region that is not his own, in that context who devotes, who devotes his, his, basically his life to it in that same way and has the same impact that goes so far beyond football. Mm. I, I, just can't, I just can't fathom something like that happening. Yeah, I mean, I just always feel that Italy. I mean, even for the generation that I grew up when you were you were both reporting in the in the nineties, early two thousands, with the you were much older. <laughs> no, but look at you. Look at some of the Italy's always had fantastic strikers, great strikers, to the point that I think a lot of people of my generation are perhaps unaware of Riva and unaware of how revered he is, and he's considered by a lot of people still as as being the absolute number one, and yet. At the moment, there are some good strikers in Italy who score a lot of goals, but just are not the same class. You know, when it came to even the, even the ones that they were there in the nineties, be it some of the people we've covered on this program before, be it Pippo and 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 the lot. Just right. wait for Pietro Pellegrini to get. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, he's already, been, he's already finished. He's already burnt out. I think it's fair to say they don't make them like that anymore. They threw away the mold. Very nice. Well, we'll be back with another Golazzo soon. In the meantime, if you've enjoyed this show, don't hesitate to rate and review us and subscribe if you haven't already. And check out any one of the many other uh, Galazzo uh, retrospective uh, trawls through the glorious history of Calcio with Gab and James. For now, from all of us here, it's Arrivederci. You've been listening to Galazzo, the totally Italian football show. It's a Muddy Knees Media production, and for sales and advertising, please email sales at muddykneesmedia.com. Check out our other football shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Audio Boom, and everywhere else you get your audio on demand. Muddy Knees Media.